So, if you don't know who I am, if you're wondering who this hippie is with this long hair, my name is Austin Ludwig, and I am the worship pastor here at Riverstone. And today I have the privilege of sharing a word that I feel uh, the Lord has for us today. And um, I just want to start off by let's together as a family, let's just open ourselves up as Holy Spirit's already doing something in the room. Um, we want to honor his presence. We recognize that Holy Spirit is here already doing something, and we invite him to teach us today that you would hear my words, but more than anything, I pray that you'll hear his words today. So will you invite him with me? Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. Teach us something beyond what our heart can feel or what our head can understand. Take us to a deeper place, something beyond what we see in the natural, Lord. Thank you for changing lives in this place, and we just prophesy right now life-changing transformation this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So our belief is that, that if we're gonna do anything that's meaningful, if we're gonna build or cultivate anything that has purpose that will bear true fruit, that it must be rooted and grounded in the belief that, that we think God wants to speak to us today. We believe that um, without his spirit leading us, without his direction, without leaning into what he said and what he is saying, that we can't do anything that is actually lasting. You know, we as the church, we pray the prayer, your will be done, your kingdom come. And I believe when we pray that prayer, it comes with the recognition that God wants to make his will known to us, that he wants to speak to us, that he wants to reveal his business to us. Jesus tells us this, that, that because we know the Father's business, we're no longer slaves, but we are friends to the master. And I believe Jesus indicates to us that we are to know the Father's business. And so we deeply believe he wants to speak today. And so this morning, I hope to share with us not just a teaching, um, but I hope today and believe and pray that it's, that it's something more. I, I pray that it's a word from the Lord, specifically for this season, for this body, for this community that God is prophetically speaking right now. And it's not something that I'm just hearing solely on my own, but it's something that um, is confirmed in community where a lot of people are hearing this right now. And I believe this word kind of all initiated last year, if you heard our senior pastor, Tom, share with us that he strongly feels and believes that the Lord is saying that Riverstone is being born again. And if you've been around for any amount of time, I think that that, that is very evident. This process of being born again is underway, that God wants to do something new in us and he wants to do something new amongst us. Today, I want to not only just affirm that word again, that, that Riverstone is being born again, but I also want to revisit what does that invite us into? We believe that whenever God speaks, he speaks with a spirit of wisdom and revelation as the word says. And so the, the, the revelation component is when God reveals something like a word saying, Riverstone is being born again. But the other component is the spirit of wisdom. It's to say, well, God, how do we respond to that word? How do, how do we proceed? What do we do? What do we not do when you speak to us? And we believe that when God speaks, we don't just sit back as bystanders. No, he, he invites us into something. Again, we are his friends. It says in the word that we are co-labors with Christ. And it's my deep conviction that in most cases, we're not just waiting on God to move or speak, but generally we are uh, supposed to respond to how he's already moving and how he's already spoken. And maybe he's actually the one who is waiting on us. I believe that God is waiting on a generation 
to create space for him to do what he desires on the earth. I believe he wants to answer the prayers of more of his people, that he's eagerly standing at the floodgates and he wants to pour out his spirit. He wants to pour out the new thing. He wants to pour out new wine. But Jesus tells us that you don't pour new wine into an old wineskin because if you do that, it's gonna burst, it will break. No, you pour new wine into a new wineskin. And when I asked God about this process of being born again, I was like, Lord, how do we as a body respond to this in wisdom? And just like we sang today, I heard him simply say that we are to make room. And guess what has lots of room? A new wineskin, something that is completely empty. God wants to do something new in us and amongst us. And when we invite him to do that new thing, we have to provide him a blank canvas to paint the new picture. We have to provide him a blank page to write the new narrative. Our posture is, God, how do we create space for you? How do we empty out the old wineskin, lay it down so that we have open hands to cultivate the new wineskin? You know, we just recently turned the corner of a new year. And uh, you probably thought about or wrote down maybe some some New Year's resolutions. If you're like me, you begin to think about all these goals and ambitions and new things you long to do. Um, and I was actually, I was talking to my uh, wife the other day and I was, you know, even just this week telling her about the things that I wanted to do this year. And she like kind of sat there and let me go on. And then she looked at me with this kind of patronizing look and she was like, that's awesome. So what are you gonna say no to? And I was like, Haha, you know, but I, it, was, it was a reminder that I deeply needed that, you know, if, if you have a strong yes, you have to have an equally strong no. If we're saying yes to some things, then it must be met with an equally strong no in our life. But we struggle to do this at times. We struggle to make room. We keep checking guests into the metaphorical hotel of our life while the no vacancy sign has been on for quite some time and every room has been occupied. All the yeses keep on coming in, but no nos are going out and leaving. How do we make room? Again, if we're saying yes to the new wine, the new thing God wants to do, then that means we're saying yes to the new wineskin. So that must mean we're saying no to the old wineskin, that there are some things we're to let go, some things that we are called to surrender. So if I had a title for this message today, I would say that it is less is more. And I believe today we are called to talk about what this looks like in making room for God. And so we're gonna start with our foundational passage of scripture this morning. It's John 15. If you wanna turn there or turn your attention to the screen, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the true vine and the father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I think it's so fitting that last week Tom taught on discipleship because our passage this week kind of comes to this climax, this precipice that, that finishes by saying, we know that we are disciples of Jesus 
by showing that we have fruit. There is a verification, there is a confirmation and an affirmation that we are disciples of the way, and that is that we bear fruit. And Jesus lays out for us how we bear fruit. He teaches us not only is it through abiding in him, staying connected to him, the true vine, but in this illustration, he tells us that the father is the gardener. In other translations, that he's the vine keeper, that he is the vine dresser. And what we discover at the very beginning of John 15 is that there is a way to mourn the kingdom. There is a way to increase. There's a way to multiplication. There's a way to the new thing. There's a way to new fruit. There's a way to even new wine. Jesus lays it out clearly. He tells us, the father prunes those who bear fruit so that they can produce more fruit. Pruning is the pathway to producing. Pruning is the avenue for growth. As we're invited into what seems like a kingdom paradox, we discover that the way to more is less and that the vine dresser has come to make room upon the vine. Ushering in the new thing looks like letting go of some old things. It looks like letting God prune us and it looks like letting God remove some things in our lives that need to go. But this is difficult for us, especially living in an American culture When we see things being cut away or we see what looks like loss or decrease, we go to a very westernized mindset because we've been taught in the natural that what looks like more looks like this constant measurable increase. It always looks like up and to the right. Or if you're like me, you may have grown up in your younger years at a church culture that always talked about the more of God. They called him the God of more and it got kind of twisted a bit into this prosperity gospel thing and it became about attendance and a number in the bank account or followers or influence. And, and that is a very true statement. He is the God of more, but I think it looks different in the kingdom. And just a sidebar, I wanna remind us that in this ever-increasing digital age, um, that social influence does not always equate to kingdom impact. Actually, fruit in the kingdom looks very different. And Jesus teaches us that at times in the kingdom, the way to more is actually less. We see loss or decrease though, and oftentimes we think there's no way that God can be in the midst of this. And we tend to fall back into this orphan mindset that asserts that if there's disappointment or, or any setback that I must have done something wrong. We don't see it as a reward of the Father. We see it as us messing up. We, we miss an opportunity. We don't get the job that we applied for, or maybe we lose the job that we currently have. Maybe we make an offer on a home and it gets beat, or maybe we invest our savings into a business that totally fails, or we have a bad breakup or a relationship falls apart. The list goes on and on. And understandably, rarely our initial response is, God, what might you be doing to make room for fruit in my life? Rarely do we recognize that in the kingdom, the opportunity to bear more fruit looks like less sometimes at first. It's seldom we remember that an affirmation from the Father that we are producing is pruning. You know, when we're meant to bear more fruit, less fruit doesn't look like more fruit in the natural. It's like, well, duh, that's a no-brainer. But again, the pathway to production in the kingdom looks very different, and he prunes those who bear fruit so that we can produce more fruit. Friends, we can't miss that pruning is a sign of first connection to Jesus, as he tells us, abiding and remaining connected to the true vine. But that pruning is a sign of love, it's a sign of intimacy, and is a sign that he is so close to us. David Jeremiah says this, 
The vine dresser is never nearer the branches than when he is pruning them. When we see space created in our life and a person, place, or thing needs to go, maybe the appropriate response should be, God, is this you creating margin for the new thing you long to do? Could this even be a sign that you're so close to me right now, that you're so near to me? I'll be the first to admit that seasons where God is creating space and pruning usually are not fun. They're usually not easy. They're usually uncomfortable and even a little bit painful. And I speak with so many people who quickly crumble in the midst of discomfort or difficulty. And I myself am so guilty of this. Just this week on Friday night, I found out some, just like there was an opportunity that I was thinking I might have in the next couple months. And it seemed like it got ripped out from under me. And, and I remember like laying awake at night, you know, as I'm preparing the teaching for this Sunday and then Holy Spirit checks me and he's like, He's like, what is up with this hopelessness? He's like, aren't you about to talk about how like a missed opportunity could be an upgrade? And I'm like, oh, I repent, you know? And so I'm like laying there thinking about this. And even, even you know, yesterday, going into yesterday, I had to continue to go back to that place and say, you are the God of more. And sometimes that might look like less. But we begin to question at times, God, are you really working together things for for my good. We like the statement, God is good, but many of us, we wrestle with this because our culture has taught us that what is good is always the presence of comfort, that what is good is always the absence of pain, that what is good is getting what we want, when we want it, how we want it, to be instantly gratified. But I've come to realize that my definitions of what is good and God's definitions of what is good, they can look very different. Beloved, today you need to know that we are his children and he is our father. And if you are a parent, then you probably understand that sometimes you do things that are good for your children and your children do not perceive those things as good in the moment. You, I mean, your kids, they wanna stay up late. They wanna watch TV all day and eat dessert for every single meal. But you set limitations. You even take things away because you know it's for their good. And although they might be crying out in suffering as they're eating their vegetables and going to bed early, you know that in the long run, that is what is good for them. And oftentimes this is just the same way with our relationship with our heavenly father. When we think about making room for God, we usually think about just the bad things that need to go, just the bad things, God, just the bad things need to be pruned in my life, just the things that like I can say that's bad in my perspective. But sometimes it's what we think is good currently that may need to go, that may need to be pruned. And we tend to tightly hold on to what's comfortable, familiar, and how we've done things previously. And I'll say this, we could have even done something a certain way for a specific reason, even something appointed by God that was good, even something that we followed through with that he called us to be obedient to, that God might even be asking us to surrender to him because we need to be reminded that we are not obedient unto something, we are obedient unto someone. What if he is asking us to make room even in the midst of what we think is good? I wanna say this, this, no matter what, it will be affirmed by the words of Jesus, by his word. When God is, is asking you to, to do something uncomfortable, I wanna remind you that, that we can know that he's not gonna contradict what his word has spoken. And so when we hear him, just a, just a reminder, when we hear him today, when he speaks a rhema word, when he's prophetically telling us to do something, 
it's going to be confirmed by what Jesus has spoken, okay? So the question is, are we available? Are our hands truly open? Or are we holding on to our preconceived notions of what we think more is? Do we get upset when we ask God for more, but what comes first is less? Do we pray for new wine while we extend the old wineskin to God, but then miss the fact that maybe those unanswered prayers are his mercy so that we don't collapse and burst at what he longs to pour out with the new thing? Chris Valentin says this, he says, what you know can get in the way of what you need to know. Sometimes God wants to give us what's good, but we don't have open hands to receive what is truly good because we're tightly holding on to. Our hands are occupied with what we think is good. It might seem painful to give to God what we believe is good in our life or what was good for a season, but I promise you that holding on to what God is asking you to surrender will always be significantly more painful if you do not lay it down. There's a momentary pain that's worth it. Goodness is not about the gift itself. It's about the one who gives it. It is about the giver. What is good might change, but who is good will never change. If a sign of discipleship, if a sign of discipleship is that we are to produce fruit, then discipleship will cost you something because producing fruit comes from pruning. Jesus tells us if we cling to our life, we will lose it. I think about the story with the, the rich young ruler He's very wealthy. He comes up to Jesus and he says this. He says, what good thing? Notice he says, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus says, obey these commandments. He says, I've done that. And then Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And it says the man left and he was distraught. I can imagine that that man wrestled with whether or not that was good because that was probably painful or uncomfortable to hear. Or what about the man who came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you anywhere. He said, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury the dead. I can't imagine that didn't feel good in the moment, that it was probably uncomfortable to hear. I think we misinterpret the season that we're in. We look at the pruning shears of God and we say, get behind me, Satan. Pain blinds us to God's mercy in the moment. It blinds us to his goodness. And it's usually not until hindsight that we see that, if you've lived a little bit of life or you've walked with God for some time, I think you, you'll know that when you look back, the things that once caused you pain and discomfort, you can actually posture yourself and actually experience gratitude for those things. There are things that you wouldn't trade that were painful, that were actually your upgrade for more. Henry Nouwen says this. He says, grateful people learn to celebrate even amid life's hard and harrowing memories because they know that pruning is no mere punishment, but preparation. I know this to be very true in my life. There were a lot of painful things that occurred that I don't believe God caused, but I do 100% believe that he used for my good, for his good and his glory and his purposes. If you know my personal story, if you haven't heard it, um, I, I was uh, walking through some difficult abuse as an adolescent. And this resulted in me becoming a foster kid in my teenage years. 
in the darkest and most depressed season of my life was the first three months of foster care. At the age of 14, when I found out my father went to jail and my siblings went into the system, I went on the run. <laughs> like I was on the run for a couple of weeks trying to evade child services. But eventually I got picked up at a park by police and I got taken to a group home and then later on to my first foster home. And my first foster home I was placed in uh, was out in the middle of nowhere. It was in the boonies out in a place called Lindale, Georgia and Floyd County. And my foster parents, their names were John and Betty. John and Betty in Lindale, Georgia. It sounds like a TV show or something. But on top of that, when I arrived, they proudly informed me that they were Floyd County's oldest foster parents. They were in their 70s. And I was 14 at the time. And I was like, oh Lord, here we go. And so John and Betty out in Lindale, Georgia, they owned a farm with many acres. Um, and interestingly enough, this is actually where I, I began to learn to work the land. And I, and I hated it at the time. They didn't have a TV. I couldn't get on a computer. I didn't have a smartphone. And when I wasn't busy working the grounds and even helping prepare the fields to plant squash and watermelon, I spent my free time just thinking about how terrible my life was. I hated it. But I was also carrying a lot of brokenness and a lot of wounds from abuse that I had endured. My family was torn apart. My siblings were separated. I was alone and isolated with nobody that I truly knew. And during that time, I lost all desire to live. And I, and I wondered why God would let all of this happen. In the evenings around sunset, I would walk these acres in this property, just kind of hoping that time would go by quicker so I could go to sleep and kind of just forget it all. And a lot of times in these moments of desperation, I'd be walking the fields and I'd be talking with God and these weren't pleasant conversations. I was angry. And in desperation, I would get on my knees in the grass and the dirt and I would cry out and I'd say, God, what are you doing? Don't you see what's going on? How could you let this happen? I heard that you are good. Is it a lie? I began to question these things. At the age of 14, I began to wrestle with the truth. I was so broken. I was desperate. I was shouting at the heavens looking for an answer. But little did I know that this pain, it would change the trajectory of my life forever for the better. Most importantly, in that season of, of prayers, of desperation and dirty knees, I encountered God's presence and his nearness in a way that can never be denied or taken away from me, in a way that even if I wanted to deconstruct it, I could not because it impressed in me the reality of who he was. And he changed my heart before he changed my situation. And he offered his presence before he offered an answered prayer. But eventually that painful journey did lead to an upgrade and it led to a new foster home with a Christian organization called Windshape Homes, which was founded by Truett Cathy, also the founder of Chick-fil-A. And I found Truett's words to be so true as I began to learn about his legacy and what he said. He says this, it's better to build boys than mend men. And for the next three years, I learned to be a boy again. Innocence began to be restored and I was built up in the father's love as I was starting to heal amongst this very complex and complicated depiction of family with 12 foster brothers and sisters who also came from a very broken past. But as I went through these next three years, 
I graduated out of the system and had opportunities I never would have had if I hadn't walked through that pain and was in that foster home. I went to college, like, and I can tell you right now, I for sure wouldn't have done that. And that college led me to Kennesaw State University, which led me to Riverstone, which led me to ministry, which has continued to unravel the good things that God has begun to reveal in my life. And in hindsight, when I look back, all I feel is gratitude and all I see is goodness and all I see is mercy. And the good thing is like, there's still, there's still more to come. Like I'm like, I'm like pruning brings multiplication. And so I'm excited about even still what he's going to unravel. And I think oftentimes about the story of Joseph, the dreamer, the coat of many colors guy that we learned about in Sunday school. Um, but if you look in his story, you remember that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. They hated him. And then he was sold to Potiphar's house, but in Potiphar's house, he kind of got favor, but then he was knocked down again because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And this led to him going to prison. And in that desperate place in his prison cell, he meets a baker, he meets a cup bearer. And the cup bearer, he interprets his dream and says, you're gonna be released from here and you're gonna have favor. And he says, but remember me. And the cup bearer gets out of the prison while Joseph remains and he forgets about Joseph. And two years go by and, and Joseph's still in this prison cell. But then Pharaoh has these disturbing dreams. And that cupbearer, as Joseph said, from prophesying and, and interpreting the cupbearer's dream in the prison, he said, you'll become the chief cupbearer. And he did. He was Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. And he was like, oh man, I forgot about Joseph. And nobody can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And, you know, the cupbearer says, I know a guy. So Joseph is called upon by Pharaoh to come out of the prison. And what does Joseph do? He interprets the dream and has this heavenly wisdom and this knowledge about what to do. And not only does Pharaoh free Joseph from the prison, but he makes Joseph second in command of all of Egypt. Like that's about as high as you can get without being number one. He has this insane upgrade in we know the result of this is not only is an entire nation saved, but his family is saved, and even the brothers and the ones who betrayed him, he saves them. And I share this because, like Joseph's story, we have these ups and downs, ups and downs. We feel like we have this favor, and then we feel like it's just going terribly, and it's a roller coaster that seems to happen. And we find ourselves in the natural in these moments of disappointment that feel like we're surrounded by limitation, like we too are in that prison cell like Joseph was for two years plus. But sometimes you find yourself in a prison and you think that it's a downgrade. But that's where you meet the cupbearer, which leads to an upgrade and unlocks destiny and favor like never before. Without the prison, Joseph would have never met the cupbearer and that would have never led to him saving Egypt and his family without the false accusation that led to prison, Potiphar's house that led to the false accusation, slavery that led to Potiphar's house, being hated by his brothers, which led to slavery. But we must remember the beginning of the story. It all originated because Joseph received from God destiny and purpose and calling over his life. This is where the story began. And the story ends with Joseph saying this in Genesis 50, 20. He says this to his brothers, to his family. 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We see in Joseph's story and in our stories as well that oftentimes what the enemy meant for evil, God can turn for our good. God will even take what the enemy meant for evil and use that as his pruning shears to bring upgrade and multiplication in your life. The enemy will come to steal, kill, and destroy, but the Lord can take a loss, turn it into a win. He can take less and turn it into more. And I wanna say that what if the difficulty or the discomfort and the disappointment that you have walked through or are walking through currently What if it's only an upgrade for more? What if it is a testament that God is calling you into a new thing? You see, Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30 years old. He began his ministry by being baptized and being affirmed by the father who said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But then directly after that, the word tells us that Jesus was led by God, by the spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days, 40 nights. Led by the spirit to intentionally choose a place of weakness, self-denial, discomfort, even pain and suffering. He was led by the Spirit into this. This was the beginning of the Messiah's ministry. And it's what I like to call his graduation ceremony. And in this moment, this is where the devil shows up and he sees Jesus in this pain, weakness, this discomfort. And he's like, this is a good time to shoot my shot. And he shows up. He tries to tempt Jesus and he's unsuccessful. Jesus resists him. And it says that he left the wilderness in power and this changed the course of history forever. What follows next? See, we think a lot of times when things are painful and uncomfortable and difficult that, you know, the devil is attacking me. We kind of get devil focused. We get hyper-focused on the enemy. We go, oh my gosh, the devil. And and maybe he is attacking you. I don't, I don't want to uh, seem patronizing. He very well could be attacking. But what if his appearance in this difficult season is unbeknownst to him, just his attendance at your graduation ceremony? What if when the enemy attacks, it's just an affirmation that you are about to step into what God is calling you into? What if the enemy's presence is just a confirmation of your upgrade? A couple months ago, my wife and I, we were walking our dog in our neighborhood and we were just having a conversation and she said something and asked something that was very profound. She said, how do you know the difference between the pruning shears of God and the attack of the enemy? And that question, it hit me in my gut and, and I started responding and it was kind of that moment where you're like, you're saying words and they come out and then you're like, oh, that was for me. You know, when Jesus talks to Peter and says, that didn't come from you, that came from heaven. And I felt like it was one of those moments. I was like, wow, this is for me. And my wife like drew this thing out of me. And I remember after that walk, we got home and I felt prompted by the spirit to write some of those things down. And I felt the Lord say that, you know, we do need discernment to know the difference. We need discernment in this day and age to know the discerning of spirits and what's what and what is coming from what. Is it an attack? Is it the pruning shears? And oftentimes we get kind of like thrown in this chaotic place trying to figure it out. But what I realize is that more often than not, the two of those things happen at the same time. The pruning shears of God, the attack of the enemy, they seem to parallel. 
As I said, the enemy shows up to the graduation ceremony, which often looks like the wilderness, which sometimes is appointed by the spirit, which is a season that invites us into self-denial, into posturing ourselves into a place of recognizing our weakness. But our weakness on display usually seems to become this magnet for the enemy. Like Jesus in the desert, he sees the weakness and the discomfort and he shows up. But the enemy attacking in this moment is actually his greatest mistake because the word tells us that in our weakness, God's strength is revealed. Could it be that even sometimes we, God is using our weakness on display to attract the enemy so that he can kick his butt? I know that I've seen that happen again and again. When we see an assignment of the enemy, it's only substantiating that God first has an assignment for us, that God has called us into something that's already underway. And the wilderness may very well be where God has us so that we can be stripped of our own strength, so that he can display his power. You know, I'm not concerned about the enemy because the enemy knows under the blood of Jesus, under the new covenant, that we're the ones who are walking in authority. The enemy is not just trying to get just to take you out. He's trying to convince you to take yourself out because he knows you are the one who has the authority. And Jesus tells us that we are to deny ourselves, to take up the cross daily and follow him. He doesn't say deny the devil. He doesn't say deny your friends or your enemies. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus displays this for us perfectly. In the wilderness, He resisted the devil, but Jesus resisted the devil by denying himself what the devil was offering, by denying himself what the devil was trying to tempt him with. It says that after Jesus resists temptation three times, after 40 days, 40 nights, it says that when he left the wilderness, he was filled with the spirit. He was full of the spirit. And I believe that Jesus was able to be full of the spirit because for 40 days and 40 nights, he emptied himself out. The reality is that Jesus didn't need pruning. He was without sin. He was perfect. He didn't need to be baptized even before the wilderness. But I believe Jesus went into the wilderness to display to us what we are to do, to be pruned, to be emptied out so that God can do more and so that we too can be full of the spirit. Hebrews says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that what remains is eternal. And I've begun to thank God again and again for the seasons of shaken because they have revealed to me all the mess that I've tried to build up in my own strength. If you wanna look at what needs to be pruned in your life and look at what's shaking around you, like we sung today, what, what is it that we haven't built on the cornerstone that is Jesus that can't be shaken? What is it that we've built up in our own strength or that we're leaning on? I believe that sometimes the storms of life, the little ones that happen are sometimes God's mercy just to reveal to us what's shaking around us. Jesus says to build on the cornerstone, build on the rock that can't be shaken. Don't build your house on sinking sand. Don't build it on an unsolid foundation. Build on me. He tells us troubles will come. They are a part of humanity. But he says that, We are to build on the cornerstone. If you see shaking things in your life, our response has to be, Father, come and prune those things. And that is the invitation again and again. 
Growing is always uncomfortable. Surgery is necessary for healing and wholeness. Fire is essential for refining. Stretching is necessary for increased capacity. Pruning is required for fruit. And every time something dies off in our lives, it makes way for resurrection. When I think about the winter season that we're in currently, it you know seems somber to look around you and to look at trees after every leaf has fallen, everything's barren, it's been stripped of its fruit, and it looks like just a bunch of dead stuff. And it may not be as beautiful as springtime, but the beauty of what blossoms in spring is only made possible by what dies in winter, a necessary part of the process to make room for the new thing. And with pruning comes this clarity. If you stand at the edge of the woods in the wintertime when all the leaves have fallen, you can see for a mile or more into the woods. But during the summer, during the spring, when the leaves are full, you can only see a few hundred feet in front of you. So we see that pruning brings a new clarity. At the end of 2019, all the global prophets in the world were all talking about 2020 and they were saying and prophesying 2020 is gonna be a year for 2020 vision, right? And we got into 2020 and it got crazy and COVID happened, civil unrest, it got chaotic and it didn't feel like for many people a year of vision. But again, I believe what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. And this brought clarity like never before. The pruning that happened over the course of the past two years has brought clarity and it truly was a year for vision. And I share this word today because I believe that we in this house at Riverstone, we're on the back end of completing a season of pruning. If you think the enemy's winning, you're so wrong. God is on the move and he is doing something. If the past two years have been hard, painful, and uncomfortable, I hope you know God is near. The vine dresser is never near the branches than when he is pruning them. And as we go into ministry time this morning, I believe that there is an invitation. Actually, let's just do this. Let's just all stand together. I believe we are coming to the end of a chapter as God is doing a new thing. He's been making room. He's been making room for the new thing. And oftentimes when you're on the final page in a book, you can see the next chapter right in front of you. But I wanna say, don't, don't let the first page of the next chapter distract you from the last page of the one you're currently on because God has something for you in that. And I believe there's an invitation for the Father to do the final stages of pruning, that today the invitation is that we would surrender to him those things, the final things that he wants us to lay down to make room for new wine. God wants to be a part of every single thing that goes on inside of you in your life. He doesn't want any stone unturned. There's a God-shaped hole in every man and every woman, in our head and our heart. And we try to fill that, that hole, that space with other things, but it's a a space that God belongs, that he was meant to occupy. And if we don't let him in to come and make room, to make our house his home, then the things that we stow away in the attic of our mind and in the basement of our heart, if we don't begin to let God prune those spaces, it begins to overflow and it creates chaos in the living room of our soul. Even those dark cluttered spaces that we don't want to visit at times, that we're ashamed of where we don't wanna go, God says, even there, I long to occupy that space. Will you let me come in and make room? So if the ministry teams wanna come up,
We're gonna be praying for people today. And I also wanna extend the invitation to say, if you wanna come to the altar, if you feel like there's some things that you need to surrender to the Lord this morning, if there are cycles, if there's addiction, if there is something in your life you feel like is continuing to take space where God was meant to occupy, you can surrender that today. I believe God's pruning shears wanna come and sweep through this place this morning, that we're to make room for God. I'm gonna finish the service by just reading this from Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. You can come and receive prayer.